LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two of our interview with Frank Joseph discussing his book Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, The Real War of the Worlds. The interview resumes as we examine Nazi Germany's exploration of Antarctica, the US military's mysterious mission to Antarctica in Operation High Jump and the South Polar region as a potential location for extraterrestrial bases. Okay, well, we spoke a few minutes ago where we referred to the Nazi weapons program during World War II, specifically its um, high-end technology and secret programs, only some of which were ever actually realized. But you do talk further um, about the Nazi regime of World War II with regard to, uh, well, various overlaps, uh, I mean, not least of which, I mean, he began by pointing out that during the First World War, UFO or ET interventions, interference affected both sides in the conflict, or all sides, shall we say, because there was multiple ones. You mentioned an interesting historical event about which I knew nothing previously, which was a, a Nazi expedition to the Antarctic just prior to the start of the Second World War, bearing in mind that Nazi regime came to power quite some time before the Second World War actually started. Uh, there was a 1938-39 expedition, and there was talk about an, an ice-free region in the Antarctic. And having done a little bit of research since, I was not aware that these these places really existed. And they refer to them as um, Antarctic oases, uh, which is a bit, a bit ironic because, of course, that they're quite sterile and arid. So as well as talking about that pre-war Nazi expedition... You then, of course, in due course, come on to the U.S. military's Operation High Jump and the Battle of Antarctica, which takes up quite a section of your book. And while reading all of this very interesting material, um, I was reflecting on the fact that for some reason the Antarctic has had a great pull on the human imagination, particularly of writers and other creative people, and impacted on popular culture. Uh, this could be anything from theories about um, Atlantis, you know, did it exist? Where was it located? People have pointed out that at one point uh, the Antarctic was ice-free and quite lush. And I started thinking about the movies you've got, uh, who goes there, you know, the, the thing uh, the, the located in the Antarctic. The point being that the whole location itself has got tremendous mystery about it, mystery and danger and the unknown. There's the land that time forgot there. That story involves the island of Caprona, which is in the region of the Antarctic. So I've gone off on that tangent because there's 
I think this happens to any part of our world, whether it be mental or physical, whatever it happens to be that is unknown. Uh, we populate it with very, very, well, we populate it with all sorts of things because we just don't really know what's there. And I think if in due course, if the time comes again that the Antarctic is ice free and we have the opportunity to really explore it, uh, we will may well find things that change our view of human history. Well, you raise some very interesting points, of course. Um, and Antarctica, I'm, I agree with you 100%. If we knew more about what's under the ice, that uh, we would learn a, a great deal of information that might totally change our, our concepts of history and, and natural science. That's entirely possible. Uh, probably more than possible, probably inevitable. Uh, but as regards uh, UFOs associated with Antarctica, uh, that began with the uh, German expedition of late 1938 into early 1939. Um, the Germans uh, sent a single ship uh, called the Schwabenland uh, down to Antarctica for the sole purpose of scientific investigation. It was not a military invasion. I've seen it characterized as such or it had absolutely no uh, military uh, implications whatsoever. All the people involved with it were involved actually for two reasons, uh, primarily scientific. What they wanted to do was to fly over areas of Antarctic, uh, Antarctica that had never been um, charted before, never even been seen before. And so the, the Schwabenland had two long-range seaplanes uh, on board, and they brought along literally miles and miles of film so that when they flew over these areas, they were going to document them for the first time uh, from the air. Aerial archaeology at that time was relatively new, and the use of aircraft in science was still relatively new, but these long-range uh, seaplanes, Dorniers, would have been uh, uh, quite good for doing that. And the second reason was, uh, as everything might understand, the Third Reich was, it was for uh, propaganda purposes as well. Look what great job, what great stuff we're doing, uh, you know, scientific uh, stuff. And it was also to, to polish up uh, the German image. Uh, there were there were no uh, weapons brought along, uh, no uh, tanks or anything, or submarines, nothing like that. A lot of nonsense. Uh, has been written about the German involvement in Antarctica. And I went out of my way to spend a lot of time to seeing, to tracing down as many of these stories and seeing how much of it was true or not. And I found out that the vast majority of it was untrue. The Germans uh, during World War II uh, had their hands uh, full uh, just trying to uh, interdict the North Atlantic convoys. And they certainly had no... Uh, crews or submarines left over to do any kind of a base in Antarctica. Having a base in Antarctica would have been totally out of the, the war zone, uh, would have had no effect whatsoever on the course of the war, and the Germans knew that, and they, they never had any kind of military involvement down there whatsoever. In the Arctic, in the north, uh, at the North Pole, area, north, northern polar regions, no doubt the Germans were very interested in attacking the convoys that went from Britain to uh, Murmansk in Russia. That's what they were very interested in, but nothing in, in, the, in the Antarctic. Uh, but you bring up a, a really interesting point. Well, why is it that we nonetheless uh, 
here are so many reports, and many of them are valid, about UFO sightings and UFO activity in Antarctica. And uh, that that uh, question was addressed by a Soviet scientist whose name I cannot remember. I'm, I'm sorry. I have so many um, details in the book, I'd have to go look him up again. But he's in my chapter on Operation High Jump. And I should say before I, I mention him that Operation High Jump was the name, rather strange name too, for an operation which was a military operation. It was nothing less than a military invasion undertaken by the United States Navy, uh, led by none other than Admiral Richard E. Byrd, who was one of the most famous personalities of the first half of the 20th century, polar explorer. And this was a major a military attack on the Antarctic region. I mean, how how insane does that sound? And nobody supposedly lives. No, there are certainly no uh, military facilities of uh, any note down at the uh, South Polar regions, and yet the United States, immediately after World War II, beginning in late 1946, launched a substantial large naval flotilla and got involved in a shooting engagement, series of engagement in which aircraft were shot down, ships were sunk, men were killed, lost, other men were injured, and this operation, known as Operation High Jump, was defeated, was driven out of Antarctica, and had to make port in Chile in order to make repairs and in order to assist in the medical uh, operations that were being involved on casualties. So what on earth was that all about? When I first heard about this, I thought this was science fiction. I just dismissed it. I, I knew about it for years, but I thought just a story. Until I just figured, well, this is long before I even uh, began contemplating writing military encounters with extraterrestrials, although this was one of the factors that made me want to write the book. Out of just sheer curiosity, I went to Wikipedia one day and looked up Operation High Jump, expecting that it would be some kind of a science fiction thing. And lo and behold, even on Wikipedia, they describe it as something that actually happened, that this was a real operation that was launched by the United States Navy. And Wikipedia, bless their hearts that put that together, the editors there, they put in a lot of source materials. And I checked out every one of them. And some of those source materials were nothing less then the website, the official website for the U.S. Navy. And boy, I learned a lot from these <laughs> Navy records about Operation High Jump. And that's what that's why I wrote four chapters. There are four chapters of the book that are dedicated to it. And I don't know any other book that uh, goes into such detail about it, but I was amazed at what happened. And in Antarctica, a place which supposedly is uninhabited, nobody lives there except maybe a dozen scientists, from different parts of the world. Actually, in 1946, there was absolutely nobody living down there. There was no life except uh, animal life. That's all. And yet, the United States goes down there and gets whipped, gets routed. Uh, what on earth was that? So that's what I really wanted to look into. And a Soviet scientist uh, who also uh, paid close attention to Operation High Jump long after this incident said that Yes, it makes sense that there are uh, so many UFO sightings associated with Antarctica and that this battle did, it in fact, take place is because 
of the uh, magnetic configuration of our planet. In other words, uh, we are like a great geomagnet in which the uh, magnetosphere of our planet is strongest at either pole, at the North Pole or the South and the South Pole, especially at the South Pole. And um, that if these craft, he is making a supposition here, uh, if these craft do in fact uh, have some kind of electromagnetic uh, properties to them, and it appears that they do, uh, given the accounts that we have of UFOs in the uh, aggregate, in toto, there seems to be an electromagnetic component to the uh, craft that operate uh, in our atmosphere and probably between worlds. And the reason I, I mention that is that many incidents, it's common, in which uh, aircraft, human-run uh, aircraft, piloted aircraft, come in close proximity to these vehicles that uh, the American, or usually the American, but other craft, they experience electromagnetic problems. And that uh, the farther away that the UFO goes, uh, the less these electromagnetic problems uh, are in evidence. Boy, you see that all the way from World War II uh, right up to the present day, um, where uh, modern jets, for example, are scrambled to make an interception. They get within firing range, and just about as they get in within firing range of their cannons, uh, the uh, aircraft begin to experience electro magnetic anomalies. Their compasses go out, their um, avionics begin to deteriorate and so forth. That's, that actually is common. So the, the Soviet scientists um, projected the hypothesis to the effect that these uh, UFOs, if they, UFO uh, uh, operators, aliens, whatever you want to call them, that if they wanted to have a base on Earth, the best place to have it would be Antarctica, because here you have literally an ongoing fountain of electromagnetic elect, uh, magnetic ex, uh, source that you can ride. He compared the, these UFOs to sailing vessels of the ancient past. The sailing vessels they used the the winds, uh, air currents, in order to uh, sail around the world. Once they understood how to apply tacking against the wind and so forth, and uh, that's what these UFOs are able to do also. They're able to use the natural uh, magnetospheric uh, energies of our planet in order to power themselves and travel from one uh, part of the planet to the next. This was even suggested by Admiral Byrd himself in an interview with uh, Chile's leading newspaper, one of the largest newspapers in the world, called El Mercurio. It has a Spanish... Uh, speaking audience in, in the many millions, not only in Chile, but throughout South America and in Spain itself, in which Admiral Byrd said that these, he's, he was talking in 1947 about craft that are able to go from pole to pole uh, in a, a matter of a very short time. What a very strange thing for him to talk about. This is even long before Roswell and before the, the big UFO flap of the late 1940s. And he's talking about uh, dangerous craft, and he's not saying craft that we have that are able to travel from pole to pole at great speeds. So I think that the Antarctica uh, factor uh, plays a major role in um, th this whole phenomena. Well, I want to come back to an aspect of what you just mentioned about electromagnetic 
interference. Just before I do that, I want to take you out on a limb just for a moment. You're talking about, or we have been talking about this unusual dimensions of Antarctica. There is, if I recall correctly, there is some brief mention in all of this of the moon in your book. And it's another that's it's another part of our reality that has been mesmerizing for humanity as far back as we yeah. can see into history. And of course, there has been speculation about ET connections and the moon for a long time, particularly as if you wanted to locate yourself close to the Earth but remain hidden from those on the Earth, then perhaps the far side of the moon might be somewhere that you could do that. You know, not unlike Antarctica. When we were talking earlier about the aftermath of Roswell and everything that went on at the Hanford Engineering Works in the US, you know, the development of nuclear weapons, there you, you spoke about ET activity intervening to prevent weapons development, particularly potentially catastrophic weapons development, as in nuclear weapons. You know, it could be the end of the species, could be the end of life on the whole planet, potentially. And yep. in reading about the moon in all of this, I have read various testimony, accounts, and speculation about some of our forays off planet, uh, specifically those regarding the moon, where people have said something was watching, something intervened, and as far as, as the same as with nuclear weapons, as far as the moon and potentially beyond went, the message to us seemed to be, turn back, this is not for you. It's like we're being yeah. warded off something. No, these are all, all great points you're bringing up, and I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. Um, my attention to these questions that you raise uh, was uh, first stated by Sergeant Carl Wolf, and he is a retired um, United States uh, Air Force specialist, a technical specialist, and he's a very brilliant man. And uh, he has a, a YouTube in which he's um, being interviewed. Actually, it's not his YouTube. He's being interviewed um, about what happened to him in July 1965. He, wa he was a, uh, a photographic uh, repair analysis specialist. He was sent to Colorado's Lowry Air Force Base in order to assist in the repair of uh, the cutting-edge um, satellite uh, photographic equipment. Um, what this was was a, uh, a satellite. This, of course, is before uh, human beings went to the moon. Uh, we landed, uh, the Americans landed in um, July 1969. We're talking about uh, four years later, almost exactly four years later, in July 1965. No one had been to the moon. However, the United States had sent reconnaissance rockets around the moon, and these rockets uh, were able to go rather closely to the moon and, and, and uh, map uh, areas of the moon that were uh, possibly suitable for the future landing that would take place uh, four years later. And um, in the course of taking these photographs, there was uh, a, a breakdown of some kind, and uh, Sergeant Wolf was sent to Lowry Air Force Base where this photographic imagery was being uh, collated. And while he was there, he was uh, shown a number of, while he was making his repairs, he had to compare uh, the uh, older photographs that had been taken with more recent ones to see what was possibly wrong. And so he was shown 
some fairly recent photographs that were crystal clear uh, when the uh, when before the cameras uh, became unfunctional, they were operating perfectly well, and they took photographs over the surface of the lunar surface, in which they clearly showed very large and unusual buildings. Now, these were not stone formations that looked like buildings. These were definitely structures that were very high. They were spires. It was almost like a, a small city of very large buildings. And the photographs were uh, unimpeachable. Sergeant Wolf was the leading uh, technician of his kind, and he could distinguish very easily between natural formations and artificial um, targets. And um, these were uh, beyond question uh, made by intelligent creatures. They were not made by us. We hadn't even been to the moon. We wouldn't be. Uh, we would not land on the moon for another four years. And he was Sergeant Wolf was under orders, of course, to say nothing about this, to make no disclosures. Um, he apparently was not the first or only person that saw these photographs. While he was examining them, a rather large meeting was taking place between uh, U.S. Air Force high-ranking officers. And, as uh, Sergeant Wolf said, uh, foreign scientists, and they were involved in some very serious discussions about these photographs. Sergeant Wolf could say nothing about his um, this incident uh, until uh, 20 years after he had uh, been mustered out of the Air Force. Then he was legally entitled uh, to go public, and he did. Uh, he mentioned nothing about it. He uh, obeyed his orders until 20 years after he had left uh, the Air Force. And in this terrific interview that any of our listeners can see on YouTube, they can just keyboard in Sergeant Carl Wolf, W-O-L-F-E, and uh, Lunar Photographs, and they will find his interview. He also gave a, a couple of, um, and not many, uh, just a, a couple of uh, lectures about uh, what he saw at uh, Langley Air Force Base. So there's no doubt. There is no doubt that there has been and probably still is a an extraterrestrial base, a serious base, a large one, on the moon. What its purposes are uh, vis-a-vis the Earth, uh, we can only imagine, um, especially in light of some of the statements made by some of the astronauts, like Neil Armstrong, of all people. Neil Armstrong said that when they were on the lunar surface, they felt that they were being watched. Uh, and, of course, many other more um, disturbing statements that have been made by others since then. So I, I believe, I can only conclude, that uh, our lunar satellite has been a base for uh, extraterrestrials for a very long time, perhaps from ancient times on until now. I want to just talk about some of the physical or non-physical dimensions of all this, and then we'll just close by moving things into the modern era where we find ourselves right now thinking about the physicality or otherwise of a ufo or et phenomena what we quite often is documented or recounted are lights uh, as opposed to creatures or hard structures now this is of course a lot of it can be subjective because we're quite often not sure 
Uh, people are not quite sure what they're witnessing, what they're looking at. But there also seems to be something that fits with this. There seems to be a lot of talk about, as I mentioned earlier, earlier electromagnetic interference, not so much kinetic as in fire and explosions from, from the ET side of things. And then we have this problem, if I can put it like that, with military involvement in a lack or what some people feel is a lack of physical evidence that is to say that it's either non-existent after the event or it's somehow spirited away as compelling as the military testimony is and as, as we mentioned before it's where a lot of the activity seems to have been historically and, and remains so and then you have these as you have pointed out very credible witnesses but for for a lot of people it's like well i haven't seen anything you know people may have or may not have their own personal experiences of anomalous uh, phenomena but i haven't seen any of this in front of my own eyes you know i've got people saying that we saw this and this of course leads to a lot of conspiracy theories and a lot of debunkers and a lot of skeptics saying this that and the other despite your book putting out these very compelling testimonies that is a problem for people that there isn't there isn't any anything that they can go and see and touch and experience directly? Well, I think there is a terrific amount of physical evidence, but as you say, it's not open to the public. Uh, we have to understand why the military is acting the way it does. And when I say military, I don't mean just in the United States, but mostly around the world. Uh, Belgium is one of the few countries that has uh, uh, disclosed to any meaningful extent uh, their uh, encounters, their military encounters with extraterrestrials. Outside of Belgium, though, and uh, with some reluctance in the UK, um, especially in the United States, there has been uh, far less uh, willingness to be open about it. But uh, we have to understand why the military generally acts in this covert manner. And that is, goes back to the early 1960s. By the early 1960s, literally millions of people around the Earth had seen or claimed to have seen UFOs. And even if a, even if only 10% of those sightings were legitimate and 90% were uh, misidentifications or hoaxes, but if you had at least 10%, that would amount to it's still a huge number of viable sightings. And so the, um, the United States uh, uh, Armed Forces as a whole went to the Brookings Institute in the United States. The Brookings Institute, uh, for uh, our European listeners not familiar with it, is a kind of a think tank, uh, an, an advisory institute, a multi-million dollar, probably now multi-billion dollar advisory institute, highly respected by uh, government uh, people and military people in the United States. And in effect, uh, United States military men asked the Brookings Institute what would happen if we thoroughly disclosed um, everything that we know about the UFOs? What would happen if uh, uh, everybody understood in, in the world uh, that, uh, yes, we're having these visitations going on? What, what would be the sociological implications of such recognition? And the Brookings Institution came back and said that if there ever such a... Uh, revelation was to take place that there would be social dislocation on an unprecedented scale. Religions would collapse, government authority would collapse, 
and um, people would literally run amok in the streets. Now, whether that's true or not, that is what the Brookings Institution um, officers told uh, our military. And from that point on, uh, the military said, that's enough for us. We will never disclose anything. We will debunk everything conceivable. We cannot take any chance with that. This actually goes, this opinion goes back to none other than Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill uh, was told during World War II by many of his officers that they had encountered things over Europe which were not German. They had no idea what these things were. And Churchill just dismissed them all as fatigue and so forth until 1942. In 1942, uh, Churchill was presented with unequivocal evidence that one of his crews had engaged in a uh, a real fight, a, 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 a firefight in which the, the Wellington bomber, Wellington was a large medium bomber, was uh, under close uh, guard by one of these objects and the Wellington bomber had opened fire on it uh, in a concerted fire for a long time and that the crew of the Wellington bomber um, even though they were afraid that they might be considered crazy and so forth, they all testified to what they had seen, and that convinced Churchill that this was real. And Churchill, now this is all released in the London Telegraph newspaper. This came out only about a year and a half, I don't think two years ago. Uh, this was secret information, classified information from World War II, but now it's been disclosed, and Churchill said that... Uh, any time that any of our RAF uh, personnel encounter these things, it's to be jumped on and classified and not regarded uh, as anything we can release to the public because the sociological implications would be dire. And he talked also about uh, public faith in religion and government being shaken by this. I don't really see the connection for that, but he did, and others at the Brookings Institution were afraid that um, that's what would happen. And um, people would just become unhinged. Um, and so he he kept that secret all throughout his life. He knew he was a, a great believer in the UFOs, as was also um, uh, President Truman, General Eisenhower. Uh, that's all been has come out since then, but they all publicly said, oh, no, it's a bunch of nonsense. But they knew secretly that these things were really taking place lends a lot of terrific credibility to this phenomenon, I feel, but it also explains why they have never disclosed uh, any of these, or very little of this information, because they're afraid that um, their whole civilization will unravel as a consequence. I don't believe that that will happen. Uh, there might be some um, disquiet, but I don't believe that uh, people will just go crazy in the streets. I think we're long past that point. Okay, well, we're talking about the potential for disclosure and what might stand in the way of that. I have met a lot of people over the years who are very interested in this subject and they spend a lot of time researching and taking part in conferences and writing articles and books about all of this. And for them, disclosure always just seems to be just around the corner. I know and it's just about to come out and, some of them are more, how can I put it, reality-based than others. But regardless, given the situation that you just described and that I've characterized, what do you think could change any of that? Is there anything that would make a difference that would that would change that official position? Well, uh, the official position has been slowly eroding over time. 
And there have been disclosures. I mentioned earlier the uh, Belgian Air Force, but even the United States um, Armed Forces, especially the uh, United States Navy, has uh, begun a slow process of disclosure. So I think we can uh, hope that it will continue. I'm referring uh, specifically to uh, a um, disclosure that took place just last December in uh, 2017, where the U.S. Navy... uh, was able to uh, disclose uh, encounters that were made between uh, two or four of their uh, air crews and an object which they uh, tried to uh, close with over the Pacific. There were some uh, naval uh, uh, training exercises that were being held off the South Carolina, South uh, uh, California coast. And um, these, uh, this small fleet of flotilla had been buzzed by this UFO for a week and had been seen by at least dozens of uh, Navy personnel, probably hundreds of Navy personnel, had been tracked on radar. All this was officially disclosed uh, last December, just wonderfully. And the, uh, one of the pilots was given permission to uh, share what he knew. Uh, that he had uh, tracked one of the uh, that tracked this object very closely, and they even released some of the gun camera um, film footage that showed how he was able to close on it. And he said that this was uh, unquestionably uh, not of earthly origin; that it uh, totally outflew their craft; that it flew many thousands of miles an hour, made was able to make uh, extremely uh, tight turns that uh, would have reduced anybody inside to liquid jelly. Um, so that was either remotely controlled, this object, or else the beings inside were uh, totally different than anything we know here. And uh, he, uh, the, the pilot uh, went on uh, national uh, television to say that uh, he felt that this was uh, an object which was uh, piloted or controlled by extraterrestrials, and that, that's so. That's an incredible disclosure that's, that has begun to take place, and I feel that this might be part of a process on the part of uh, militaries around the world to slowly acclimatize uh, the masses of people uh, to what this phenomena is, and that perhaps if we're patient, over time more of these disclosures will be made. Uh, I mean, there have been literally millions of people around the world that have seen these things, and it, it's impossible to keep it a secret any longer. And um, that's what I—that's my hope—is that this disclosure process will continue. So the objections that we both talked about to this somehow being revealed on Good Morning America with the president, you know, shaking hands with. Uh, a space alien. I mean, those those objections still exist. So you you just can't do it in that way, right? Uh, I don't know. Of course, no one knows uh, the the full nature of this disclosure. But I, I feel that it is taking place, and it will. It uh, it is an ongoing thing. My concern is not that. My concern is that I don't understand, even after having written this book, uh, the nature of this silent war that's taking place, and I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, whether this war is escalating or it is being downplayed, I don't know. There's, there are all kinds of uh, accounts of um, supposedly liaisons between uh, earthly uh, uh, military people and uh, unearthly uh, visitors. Um, your, your fellow countryman, McKinnon, of course, uh, was able to hack into uh, NASA and bring out some 
really disturbing uh, material indicating that there is some kind of dialogue, if you can call it that, going on between uh, American forces and um, intelligences from elsewhere. Whether these are treaty agreements going on, are they really taking place, or it's a misinterpretation of the evidence, I don't know. All I know is, and I, I, I feel very confident in the book, that there is definitely a shooting uh, war going on, in which uh, people on both sides, creatures on both sides, have, have died. There have been casualties on both sides. And I don't know where it's leading to, We're, especially now that the United States has created a United States Space Force. When we begin to really put atomic weapons into space, what does that mean? What are How are these intelligences going to view that? Are they going to view that as a threat? Is there some kind of an agreement that's been made? I don't know. That's that's the disturbing question. Well, if you look at the way that Gary McKinnon, I'm pretty sure it was his name's Gary McKinnon, yeah. was, was treated, that tells us something about potential disclosure. But you, the, towards the end of the book, you talk about an increase in this sort of activity uh, where we are now in the early 21st century, not least of which around the Fukushima nuclear plant meltdown in yep. Japan. And a very yep. interesting incident that, I mean, I follow the activities of Elon Musk and other kind of oh, uh, yeah. techno-utopians quite closely, but his uh, SpaceX rocket launch that was menaced by UFOs, I wasn't aware of that at all. It was destroyed. Well, it yeah, was we, destroyed. We, we know that it blew up, but uh, you know, the question is why. Well, I, actually, it's not that much of a question to it. Uh, it took place on September 1st, uh, 2016. That's not that very long ago. And what's interesting about, of course, Elon Musk is a uh, private individual, and he's mostly interested in the commercial development of spaceflight. But on that particular rocket, which was the Falcon 9 for SpaceX, he was testing an internet beaming satellite called the Amos 6, which had military implications. And although there's nothing officially said about it, I believe I can conclude that there was some military involved. They were interested, the United States Air Force was interested in the Amos 6 internet beaming satellite because of its uh, superior uh, communications uh, capabilities. Well, in any case, the Falcon 9 was carrying and testing, about to test anyway, the Amos 6, when it blew up. And when it exploded, the, the video of it, which you can again see, anyone can see on YouTube, you can just punch that in, the uh, September 1st, 19, uh, 2016 explosion of Falcon 9. You can see this object, uh, flying back and forth at high speed between the towers, and it makes one close pass, and as it makes one close pass, the entire rocket blows up. Now, that, that video has been analyzed and reanalyzed hundreds and hundreds of times, and there have, no one has been able to show that there's been any manipulation of that video. There's been no photoshopping going on. There's not a misinterpretation of a bird or a bug, nothing like that. And what's amazing is that even skeptics, hard skeptics, say that that rocket was destroyed. Although the skeptics say, oh, maybe it was destroyed by a competitor. Well, that competitor was not earthbound. And Elon Musk himself said, in a statement, as an astounding statement that he made afterwards, he said, and quote, the engines of Falcon 9 were not on, and there was no apparent heat source. This is quite him quote saying, saying, we have not ruled out that a UFO may have caused 
the SpaceX explosion. And even even months after that, he would go back to it and he'd say, I cannot understand uh, why that exploded. We have no logical explanation for it. And um, I believe that that that's, uh, that uh, the Falcon 9 was was uh, selected, was singled out for destruction by the UFOs. They did not want that communications satellite in orbits for the military to use. There have been other instances like this in the past. It's not anomalous. And um, I don't know, though, what the nature of this war is. I don't know how far it's going to go. It could result in our extinction. It definitely could. If the If the extraterrestrials, or whatever you want to call them, the aliens feel that we become a serious threat to them, that they can no longer tolerate advanced uh, nuclear weapons uh, going throughout our solar system and beyond, then I think that they, if I was in their shoes, uh, I would do the same thing. I mean, uh, it's a matter of uh, of their future survival. It doesn't take much extrapolation to see that going from a Falcon 9 uh, to something in another hundred years would be of a great threat to them. All they have to do is to introduce a pathogen from another world that will exterminate all human life here. They don't have to invade us in some kind of a dramatic Hollywood-type war of the world. It would be a very simple thing for them to grab something off of some uh, exoplanet uh, you know, beyond our reach and to introduce some uh, bacteria that would uh, would destroy us. And uh, that is, that's a real possibility. I, I, I feel that that is a real possibility. If we become too much of a threat to them, if we cross that line, if we don't have any kind of agreements with them, which we may have, as McKinnon has pointed out, we may have agreements with them, who knows, then I think that uh, we, we might uh, self-destruct in that way. What you just said recalls, the, of course, in H.G. Uh, Wells' War of the Worlds, how the common cold on Earth wiped out the Martian invaders. But It can play uh, the other side of the coin, too. Exactly. They can introduce some kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. A little distraction just popped into my head suddenly. Have you had the time or the inclination to consider whether any of the modern flight disappearances, I mean, there's been planes just going missing and, and not accounted for since the you know the, the era of flight began. But for example, like Malaysia Airlines uh, 370 in 2014, have you had any chance to like look at that and think about because those are incidents like that are, are complete mysteries to us at the minute. Yes, uh, it, it's a possibility. I wouldn't rule that out. I, I don't have any hard documentation that would would indicate that that's what happened with Flight uh, 370. Um, it, it's complex, but it's entirely possible. Uh, the reason why I say it's possible is because of a abundantly documented disappearance, one of the most terrifying incidents in the entire book, and uh, that took place uh, in uh, 1952, I believe, if I can remember correctly. It involved the disappearance of uh, two uh, uh, flight uh, officers, First Lieutenant uh, Felix uh, Mancia and his Moncla, rather, and his uh, his flight officer. And they were uh, aboard. Um, uh, a Scorpion uh, aircraft, a jet plane uh, that was flying over uh, Lake Michigan. Excuse me, Lake Superior, all the Great Lakes, and uh, it was. They were investigating a, a large UFO. Uh, they uh, their uh, radio transmissions indicated that they were in close pursuit of it, that it was not flying particularly fast. 
and that uh, on the radar screens in uh, Michigan that were monitoring the progress of the Scorpion and uh, Moncla aircraft. Uh, that the, the two blips on the screen, the UFO, the larger blip, and the, the blip of the aircraft merged. The radio uh, communication went dead. Uh, the blips merged into one large blip. The, uh, the blip of the UFO uh, vanished off the screen at an impossible speed, as it was described. And nothing of the aircraft was or of the two men were ever found again. No wreckage, nothing. There was a thorough search between American and Canadian authorities for over a month. Nothing was found. It would appear from that, from everything that's known about that incident, is that uh, Moncla and his aircraft were abducted in mid-air and uh, have never been seen again. What became of them, what they saw, what they experienced, uh, I shudder to think. But there, that is not the only incident, but that is among the very best documented. Uh, military and uh, newspaper reports uh, are available, and I, I put them in the book. So abductions do have taken place, and I'm sure still do take place, and possibly even the air. I would not know. I wouldn't know what motivation uh, the aliens would have for taking an airliner, unless there were special people on board, perhaps. Uh, but I, I do know that they have uh, definitely abducted alien. Uh, they have definitely abducted military aircraft, both well, in the Soviet Union and in the United States. Well, one of the first lines of inquiry that those looking into the disappearance of uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 was that who was on board and was there anyone significant? And uh, they, they did throw up a couple of figures, I think, who they felt were significant. But they, that's quite, oh. that's quite subjective as well. You know, significant in what way and to whom, you know, so that there was nothing conclusive there. So just two final points before we wrap up today, Frank. There's nothing in any of the evidence or in any of the material that you bring together in your book to rule out the possibility that the ETs are interdimensional. That is to say, they may have some physical reality as we understand it, but they, they may move between this reality and some other that in a way that we don't yet understand. That doesn't rule out them being physically here part of the time. What do you make of, and this is just a general point, the ideas that you've probably come across in your reading and research over the decades that UFOs, ETs, whatever, are either some kind of collective projection along the lines of Carl Jung's ideas about that, or that they are somehow psychic phenomena, that there is no tangible physical 3D reality to these things, but they are mental manifestations. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm familiar with these uh, hypotheses, and uh, they're certainly not to be ruled out because we don't know one way or the other. <clears throat> I can only uh, tell you, uh, honestly, after researching all this material for so many years and trying to get some kind of a collective picture out of it, uh, my own conclusion is is that there is some physical reality to the aliens. However, I don't believe they travel in straight lines from, say, Earth to some exoplanet uh, uh, 20 million light years from now. Um, in numerous um, reports of the UFOs, not all of them, but a, a great deal of them, the UFOs sometimes begin to manifest. In other words, they just don't fly into view like an airplane. They sort of materialize. Uh, more often than that, they are seen to dematerialize. They don't always just fly away. 
um, <clears throat> mostly in most of the ports they do. They fly away at an incredible speed so that they're not seen anymore. But there are a great uh, many reports of where the um, observer will see the UFO kind of dematerialize. What I believe is taking place is that they that that the the craft itself, if it if it is a craft, the reason I say that is because some people suggest that it has an organic quality to it. But if it is a craft, that it has the the powerful ability to warp space and time within its immediate vicinity. It creates a kind of, um, you know, we lack words to describe something we don't understand, kind of gyroscopic uh, centrifugal force, which is able to, like a whirlpool of some kind, which is able to warp space and time. Um, if you want to travel between point A and point B in a straight line, it'll take you a long time. However, let's say on a piece of paper, you have a you, you draw a circle, and then you draw another circle, and between these two, you have a, a straight line. Well, if your if your pen or your pencil follows along that straight line, it takes so much time to get from point A to point B. You can get there much faster if you take the piece of paper and you fold the two pieces together so that point A and point B are touching. And I think that is in in uh, essence what these craft are able to do. I think that they create a kind of a, a vortex or uh, an, uh, an eddy of some kind in their immediate locale that is able to warp space and time and that's how they're able to travel instantly from one place to another. That That is a, a, probably a crude explanation of basically how these things work. And there is a, an electromagnetic quality to it. Uh, somehow, uh, they're able to focus into the great uh, uh, powers of our own magnetosphere, as that Soviet scientist speculated many decades ago, and are able to use this tremendous power to create uh, their own uh, locality, their own local reality. Okay, final point. From personal perspective, I have never witnessed, in terms of the phenomena that we've been speaking about, I've never witnessed anything anomalous in my life so far. My only relevant personal experience, I would say, is that I used to live in a place called Randlesham Park, which was uh, accommodation that was provided for the American forces, Air Force, stationed in the UK in Suffolk. At, uh, at Randlesham Air Force Base. I think it was called something else, actually. But Randlesham was the area because nearby to where I lived, out the back, actually, was Randlesham Forest. And it was the late 90s when I lived there, but I used to walk in the forest. And it was only when I first moved there that I was reminded that that was the scene of a famous UFO stroke ET incident from 1980. And all I will say is, is that the forest itself, which I, I just like spending time in woodland generally, but it had a really unique, strange atmosphere. And it was very, very quiet all the time. And I never witnessed any wildlife there at all. I might have got that wrong. I might have walked through there and like, yes, there were birds, but I didn't notice them. But my my abiding memory is of, of complete silence. Not unpleasantly so, complete silence and absence of wildlife. And so if people want to know what the Randlesham Forest incident was, 1980, just look it up 
uh, you know, Google it and you'll find all the information about that. So what I wanted to ask you was, do you have any personal experience of in any dimension of any of the things we've been talking about? Well, uh, two points there. <clears throat> Your experience in the Rendlesham Forest is uh, not entirely unique. We have the same thing here in the United States. In uh, the state of Illinois, in southern Illinois, there is a, a forest. I don't even know its name because it's not a state forest. It's just uh, a natural forest. And it is extremely peculiar because you can go in there in the springtime and any forest anywhere in the United States during the springtime is is alive with bird calls and animals all over and so forth. That forest has this numbing silence. I was there once many years ago. I I didn't associate it with... Matter of fact, the, the other people that I was with, we were there on an archaeological tour and kind of a small expedition that came to nothing. But when we went into that forest, it was incredibly eerie. There was not a sound, and it didn't make any sense whatsoever. There's no stirring, no squirrels, not a bird call. And that place is known also regionally for being, well, they refer to as haunted. There's all kinds of stories associated with it. But there are other places in the world that have this quality of silence in which you feel you're either being watched or something is impending, something is going to happen. It's a very, I mean, like you, I love the forest. I love being in there. And I, I live in a forest right now. As a matter of fact, our home is in a forest. But that area, I will never go back to again. It had a very creepy feeling. As far as personal experiences, I hate to admit it, uh, but all my life uh, I had had no experiences at all. Uh, I had had friends who had. My father was a terrific astronomer. He kept a very open mind on the subject. And he told me to keep an open mind, not to be one way or the other. And it wasn't only until um, the July of 2016 where my wife and I had uh, a superb sighting. Uh, I even... I, I'm reluctant to even describe it because it seems so incredible that about three miles from where I am right now, not far from the Mississippi River, uh, during the 4th of July um, celebration, which fireworks are shot off, uh, we witnessed no less than 15 uh, UFOs. And these were not drones. These were not airplanes. These were spheres that traveled across the sky at about 300 feet very slowly. They traveled in threes. Um, they had what looked like some kind of fire. That's the only way I can explain it. It looked like fire uh, descending out of the bottoms of each one. And they it was as though they were on a railroad track in the sky. They They flew... Now, I've been watching airplanes all my life. My father was also a terrific pilot, and I've been flying since I was two or three years old. And these were not so much as flying, like an airplane flies, as though like they were being, the only way I can describe it is like they're picked up and moved through the sky. They were like on a railroad track. They all drifted towards the, the west in exactly the same pattern. And it was astounding. I mean, it, it actually happened. I didn't write my book because of that. I was already writing the book when we saw this. It was one of the great experiences of our lives. I mean, when we... We first arrived home after seeing it. We couldn't even speak to each other. We just looked at each other in absolute 
awestruck amazement at what we had seen. But it was it was real. I mean, I swear by my life that uh, what we saw was real. And there was no mistaking them for anything else. They were not airplanes. They were too slow for airplanes. They were too fast for balloons. They were not drones. Drones make noise. Drones make a lot of noise. And they were not drones. I'd never heard of a drone having fire coming out of the bottom. of it. it was, they were not that high. They were about 300 feet high. And the only, strangely enough, I, my wife and I both conclude the only reason that they were there was to watch our fireworks display. I think that they just liked watching the fireworks display. It seems funny or crazy, but that was the impression we got, that they just came there to, to, to see us run off the fireworks. And the, the other strange thing about it was they only appeared exactly when the fireworks began. And they left precisely when the fireworks were over. They didn't arrive early like the crowds did. And the fireworks that they have here, they never begin at the same time. They always begin at a different time. How did these, whatever they were, know to arrive at precisely the moment the fireworks began and to time themselves that they would leave precisely when the fireworks ended? So we saw them for, in other words, we saw them for about 20 minutes. That's a long sight. It was a superb sighting. I feel blessed that we saw it. We were just, uh, it was one of the greatest experiences that that anybody could have. But it was real. It was not a misidentification. The historic characterization of ETs has been called mechanical, well, just what they are, alien, but I don't know, maybe they've got a playful side or, uh, you know, they like entertainment, or maybe that's an aspect of us that they find uniquely puzzling and bizarre and they want to study, but that's a topic for another day. Uh, today, Frank, we've been talking about uh, one of your recent books, Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, The Real War of the Worlds. That's widely available. Uh, just before we finish for today, is there anything you'd like to share with listeners? As I mentioned, you've got another recent book out. Uh, maybe you want to talk about website, anything you might be working on, just anything you'd like to share. Well, the uh, only thing I, I want to say is I thank, I thank you very much for your wonderful discussion. I, I feel we had less of an interview than a real discussion. You're very knowledgeable on this subject, so I, I really enjoyed it. Mostly, I, I don't do radio shows as much anymore, interviews of this kind, but I certainly did this one. And I'm very grateful for that, Greg. It was very kind of you to do that. And, uh, yeah, I worked on a, another book which came out a little bit earlier this year. It's called uh, Power Places, and it's about um, just interesting uh uh, sites around the world in Europe and America and elsewhere that are not often discussed, like the Gold Pyramid House in uh, the United States and uh, some of the interesting places that uh, are not often discussed. That's called Power Places and it has nothing to do much with UFOs, although there is some of that, like the Bimini, uh, the Bimini Triangle, uh, that sort of a thing is also mentioned. Uh, the Bermuda Triangle, I guess they refer to it as other, in other places. But uh, as far as the, the book is concerned, yes, it's available, I guess, at Amazon.com. That's the easiest place to get it. And uh, I hope our, our listeners have found our discussion interesting today. Splendid. Well, once again, Frank, thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much, Greg. I hope we can do it again sometime.